Would you turn to Matthew chapter 2? And while you are turning there, that's uh, where we're going to land today. Um, while you're turning there, I want to throw up a um, screen of scriptures here. And this is what we've been doing the last five weeks uh, in highlighted in yellow or what is, is what we have spent some time on. And these are in chronological order from top to bottom, the narratives of Christ's birth. And sometimes when you come to Christmas, you um, are a little, it's a little confusing, is it not? When you read this Christmas story here and then you flip back to Matthew and you read a kind of a different account and uh, this is a chronological ordering of all of those that might help you a little bit to put the pieces of the puzzle together as you talk about and read the Christmas stories. And so maybe you might want to jot that down. But um, let's do this. Let's pray. And today I'm going to, uh, this is going to be just uh, kind of a Bible study. And it's a shot, very much a shotgun approach. So please just take what you can, what you'd like to uh, away today. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us the scriptures, that you have given us um, the account of what happened, that we can look at it and that we can be led somewhere. Would you lead us today to the right place? And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, Matthew chapter 2, by the way, Pull your Bibles out or pull your Bibles up on your phone, whatever. And if you have a phone and you tweet or you do Facebook, whatever, feel free to tweet and Facebook and status uh, something good that you hear today. Uh, If you don't do either of those things, then would you pick out something that you hear today and just text it to a few people, okay? And uh, that will expand the message even more. So Matthew starts out this way. He just says... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. And uh, if we start out, we need to understand what was before. And in, in the text of Matthew in the first chapter, we learned that Joseph had a dream. And it just ends that he took Mary as his wife and they had a son and they named him Jesus. And then Matthew says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea and he carries on. And all of this silent night stuff, all of this uh, baby in a manger and uh, the angels and the shepherds and the animals, uh, Matthew just skips right over that. He doesn't even mention it. Um, And that's because he has a different purpose in writing than Luke does. Luke is the one that mentions all of that. Matthew doesn't. And it's because his purpose is to show that Jesus is the king. He is writing to people who are Jewish people and they are not yet believers in who Jesus is and and what he has come to do. And so he starts out in the first chapter and he says Jesus is the king and here's why because of his lineage. And in the second part of the first chapter he says Jesus is the king, here's why because of who his father is. God is his father. And in chapter 2 he says, "Look, Jesus is the king, the Messiah. Here's why because the whole world will actually come and worship him. He is the king." And if pagans recognize him as king, it should be even easier for his Jewish readers to recognize him as the king. And so Matthew starts out after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. We should probably know a little bit about King Herod. King Herod was a person who has an indelible stamp on the Holy Land. Uh, During this time, everybody understood 
who King Herod was. He was a ruthless pagan leader. He was a non-Jew, which is odd because he was the king. But he wasn't a Jew himself. He was Idumean. He was a descendant of Esau. If you'll remember back to your Old Testament days, Jacob and Esau kind of had this clash. And the Bible tells us that they will have a clash for all of eternity. And here it pops up again. Esau, uh, King Herod is descended from Esau. And Jesus is descended from Jacob. And they are at odds with one another. King Herod married into a priestly family. He's not a Jew, but he married into a Jewish family. And that's how he began to worm his way up the ranks. And finally, he is appointed prefect of Judea by Rome. The Roman people were in charge of the territory of Israel. And so they appoint this guy, the prefect of Judea. But he insisted that he be called king. As a matter of fact, his favorite title for himself was the king of the Jews. Keep that in your hat. That'll come in handy in a minute. He was an incredible builder. He built palaces all over the place. He, he actually redesigned the very shoreline of Israel around Caesarea, and he built a port for ships to land where there was no port before. He built a palace, and he fortified uh, the top of Masada, if you uh, are familiar with that mountain there the famous uh, thing that he did was he built the temple he rebuilt solomon's temple it took him 46 years to do and uh, i have a picture of a guy who has recreated a model of herod's temple and um, you can kind of get the idea what herod did was he built a big sandbox and he put a flat top on it and then on that top was herod's temple the whole complex is 36 acres which is about four times the size of Windsor Castle. And I know you guys all know how big Windsor Castle is, right? Okay, Uh, those little specks right there uh, going up the steps, those are people, all right? And this guy has spent, I don't know, 30 years or something building this model. But Herod was an incredible builder, but he was also a typical politician. He tried to win favor with people, um, but he never really could. And so his resort was to turn to violence. And he did often. Um, Joseph Stalin once said, death is the solution to all problems. And he probably learned that from King Herod. King Herod has this string of deaths that follow him. His 17-year-old brother-in-law, who he appointed as a high priest so that the people would not make him king and take his throne. Um, He appointed as high priest and then a year later he had him drowned at a party. Uh, Later on, his first wife, he accused her of cheating on him and he killed her. And during this time, her mother declared herself the queen. And so she had to be killed. He had another brother-in-law killed later on. Uh, Worse than that, he had three of his sons at different times killed for plotting against him. Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time, once said that it was more safe to be Herod's pig than it was to be Herod's son. This guy is a ruthless killer. He was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that um, he ordered that a large group of distinguished men be killed when he died. That way there would be the appropriate amount of grief taking place in Jerusalem. When he was dead. Now, thankfully, 
his son did not carry that out. But remember, the thing to remember about Herod is that he is self-serving. He is self-serving. And so what does the text say? It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of Herod and Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men, that's what your texts say, right? Who are these wise men? Why are they in Jerusalem? Well, they are pagans. They are non-Jews. They're from another land. They do not worship God. Most people think that they were elite scholars. Uh, Most people think that they were astrologers. A lot of commentators think that they were from Persia. Um, The text doesn't really tell us how many uh, wise men there were, but it's probably more than three. And it's probably more, the, the deal is it's probably more than just three guys on camels coming into Jerusalem. If you, if you think about it, these are elite scholars and astrologers and leaders from their country, wherever that was, and they were coming into foreign territories. And so they probably had a big entourage with them. There were probably soldiers and guards and supplies and equipment and animals carrying all that stuff and animals carrying them. And so this was a big production as they rolled into Jerusalem. This probably wasn't just three guys on camels. And they came to Jerusalem. They don't go to Herod right away. They just go to the people that they meet and they start asking questions. And we also need to note the time frame that the wise men came. If we put two and two together after we read all of this text and especially about what Herod did uh, after this text, we understand that they probably were not present at the birth of Jesus. As, as a matter of fact, we know that they were not present at the birth of Jesus. They were present After the fact, some countries uh, over the years have celebrated January 6th as the arrival of the wise men. And that's 12 days after Christmas. It's why we sing the 12 days of Christmas. You thought that that song led up to Christmas, right? No, it starts when Christmas day ends and you count 12 days and then the wise men show up. So whether it's six weeks or six days or six weeks or maybe two years, the wise men show up later. They are not there. Yeah. So that means if you want a theologically correct nativity scene, right, then you will shove. If you think they are six day or 12 days late, then you'll shove them to the end of the mantle, the other end. Uh, if you think that there are a couple of months in arriving, then shove them to the other side of the room. Um, if you think it took them two years to get there, then put the wise men in the garage. All right. Um, and you'll notice that I have moved the wise men today from our nativity to make it a little more theologically correct there in the back. I got tickled a couple years ago, a few years ago, um, Charlie Smith. Some of you know Charlie. And uh, I had given a talk like this at a men's prayer breakfast. And he, uh, for several years up here on Margrave, had set up a nativity scene, a big one out in the middle of a field, and he lit it up really nicely. And so the next year after I gave this little talk, he... He came up to me and he said, hey, you need to see my wise men. I said, all right, I'll drive by. And Charlie had set up his wise men in the far corner of the field. And every time I would drive by, the wise men would get a little closer and a little closer. And, a little, and he, moved them all, he moved them all through the month of December. It was great. Okay, so these guys roll into town, right? And maybe it's naively, maybe it's with purpose. They lay down a challenge, a challenge. Here's the challenge. They ask, where is the one who has been born 
king of the Jews. Do you remember what Herod's favorite title was for himself? King of the Jews. Yeah. And here are foreign people, foreign dignitaries coming into town. Hey, we want to know where the new king of the Jews is. Because we hear he's been born. And this is not a king that will be. This is a king that already is. We want to know where he's at. And you can understand why that might have rubbed Herod in the wrong way. Now, how can foreigners make this kind of claim that there is a new king? Well, the answer that they give is that we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star. Let me stop there and just say this. God always speaks in ways we understand. Um, These guys understood stars. And so that's how God spoke to them. Some of you got to go to Memorial Hall maybe two or three weeks ago on a Sunday night and you got to stand in line in the freezing cold and uh, you got to go in and hear Jace Robertson talk, uh, a star of Duck Dynasty, that show, right? And you heard him talk about uh, his knowledge of ducks and his knowledge of creation and his knowledge of hunting. And then you got to hear him talk about how God used that knowledge to lead him to himself. And Jace became more aware of God than he ever had because of his time out hunting and because of his knowledge of ducks. And that's, what, that's where God spoke to Jace Robertson. Maybe you understand not hunting but music. Maybe you understand math. Maybe you understand leadership. Maybe you understand art. Maybe you understand farming. God can speak, and he will speak through the things that we understand to lead us where we need to go. And so this star led these men. This star itself, there are a couple theories about this. Um, A lot of people just think that it was exactly what it sounds like. It was a star. It was an astrological thing that was happening in the sky. As a matter of fact, people who study these things say that there was a certain alignment of Jupiter and Saturn that did happen at this time. And it absolutely could have been something physical in the sky. Uh, Halley's Comet is on record as showing up around this time. And some people say, well, maybe it could have been that. Um, There's another theory that a lot of commentators gravitate to, and that is Uh, based on the very word that is used for star and the way it could possibly be translated. And they say, well, maybe this isn't just a physical star. Maybe this is something else. Maybe this is God himself showing up. Maybe this is the glory of God. Maybe this is what is called in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God. If you'll think about in the Old Testament, how God led his people, Israel, through the wilderness. He led them Uh, by a cloud by day, and by night it was a pillar of fire. And the very presence of God went before them and led them. Um, If you think about the dedication of Solomon's temple, when the glory of God came down and filled the temple, so much so that the priests couldn't do their jobs. Um, If you think about events like that in the Old Testament, then it's possible that that could be similar in this situation. Maybe the star is God himself appearing. Either way, either way, they were led. And they went to the obvious place to find a Judean king. They went to the capital. They went to Jerusalem. Um, The next slide says this. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And all of Jerusalem 
with him. And you can understand why, right? Because here is the challenge, the challenge of a real king challenging his fake kingdom, his fake position is threatened. And he's a little unstable. Uh, A lot of the people would call him insane and they understand he's kind of mob bossish. And so uh, the people are a little nervous and you can understand why, because they don't know what he's going to do when he's challenged like this. And so he assembles his team and he asks about the Christ. It says he pulled the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, where's the Messiah to be born? He knew about the Messiah. Everybody in Israel was looking for this Messiah. They knew that he was to come. And here's what the scriptures say. Verse 5. The scribes pointed to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And it says, the prophet writes this, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, And it's plain to Herod after he reads this text that this is a real challenge and it must be squashed because after all, he is the king. And so he sets a trap, verse seven. Then Herod called the Magi in. This is the first time they've they've been in the presence of Herod. Um, They've just been around the town so far, but he calls them in and he finds out the exact time the star had appeared. And then he said, I want you to go to Bethlehem. That's where my people say that the kid is. And I want you to search carefully for him. And as soon as you find him, would you report back to me? And here's, here's what the text says. So that I too may worship him. And it, the implication is just like you are going to go worship him. I want to worship him as well. Of course, that was not the case. Now, while we're talking about these kings. It's obvious that there are two. There are two kings. And notice what each one is like. There is one king who is calculating. He is threatening. He is forceful. He uses his subjects. He is willing to kill. He is self-serving. And then there is another king. What did we just read about him? That he will be a ruler, but he will be a shepherd kind of ruler. He is a shepherd. And a shepherd is one who cares, one who knows his sheep, one who loves his sheep, one who leads by his example, one who provides for his sheep. A shepherd is one who heals his sheep if need be. He is one who loves his sheep, and he is one who is self sacrificing, not self serving, but self sacrificing. And the question is. Which king would you rather serve? The one who will slit your throat? Or would you rather serve the one who will take your place so that his own blood is spilt? And do we not routinely reject this shepherd king in favor of the brutal one? We do that all the time. We do that because we think that this self-serving king will make all the right promises. But in the end, he always fails us. Maybe we we do this because we're attracted to power. But the reality is the only thing that we need is humility. Malcolm Gladwell said this about leaders. He said, in crisis, we don't need leaders who will act boldly. What we need is a leader who will act humbly. 
And that is what Jesus did. He is a leader who is willing to listen, who is willing to sacrifice. And so, these wise men carried their gifts right past Herod, the self-serving king, to give them to a far greater king, Jesus himself. Verse 9. So, the wise men went, and um, there are some notes I want to take, uh, give you about their experiences. And these notes about the wise men are applicable to every Christian everywhere. And you can use them to measure yourself. How are you doing? Here's number one. Notice that these wise men were filled with joy. What does the text say? They were overjoyed is what this text says. The ESV that I have on the screen doesn't quite get it. Some of your texts say that they, uh, they rejoiced with great joy. And it's a redundant phrase. It's, it's, we do this all the time. We use these kind of redundant phrases that we shouldn't use. We say, well, I want it filled full. Well, if it's filled, it's already full. So one of those words is redundant, right? Or we say, hey, that's an added bonus. Well, a bonus is something that's already added. And so we don't need an added bonus. It's redundant. Or we say this, uh, well, we might could go there. Both of those words uh, indicate probability. We might go there or we could go there. To, so to say both is redundant. And so Matthew uses this redundancy for effect. He says, they rejoiced with great joy. The message version captures it very well. It says they could hardly contain themselves. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Because you have met the shepherd king. We of all people, especially at this time of year, have reason to be joyful. Number two, they worshipped. They worshipped. Uh, faith. Uh, in verse 11, uh, it says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped. Faith is falling to your knees and calling him Lord. Number three, they honored Jesus with their best. They gave him gifts. Now, Matthew does not comment about the gifts, but Christians over the centuries have looked at these gifts and they've said, you know what? Those gifts mean something. Um, We like to look at the gift of gold and we like to think that that's a gift that you give a king. Gold is fit for a king. We look at the gift of frankincense and we understand that frankincense was a fragrance used in temples and religious ceremonies to honor gods. And so we think it's appropriate that we would give frankincense to a baby who is also deity, also God himself. And we look at myrrh and we understand that it's a spice used for embalming dead bodies. And we think how appropriate it was for the wise men to give myrrh. Because it foreshadowed what was to come for Jesus. Because he was to die. And myrrh would be used to embalm his body. They established, number four, a relationship. This wasn't just a one-time bowing. But it was an established relationship. Even after they come and worship Jesus, God comes to them in a dream and they start to do what he says. There is a relationship that is established. Number five, after that relationship is established, they went another way. At the end, they go another way. When you come to Jesus, when you understand who the shepherd king is and you bow to him, it is a right to go a different way with your life. 
You either stop trusting in your own righteousness or you stop doing destructive things because you're going a different way now. Number six, they made a new enemy. Here is Herod, who uh, they considered a useful source of information before, and now God says, no, he's the enemy. And it is absolutely okay to be opposed to the same things that God is opposed to. Those things that you used to embrace in your life, you come to realize now they are snakes and they will bite. And so it's absolutely okay to have new enemies. Number seven, they gained a new purpose. They gained a new purpose. They went back and we assume to their own country and we can only um, guess and, and we just know, right, that they took this message of the shepherd king back to their own country and to their friends and to their family, and they shared it with the people that they knew. So that's the Bible study, right? Um, how many things did you learn? I didn't have you keep track, okay? But how many of you learned maybe one or two new things? Uh, how many of you learned a whole bunch of new things that you'd never heard before? Still some hands going up. It's good. I want to tell you what that knowledge will do for you. Um, and I feel a little bit like Lucy, uh, who sets the football up for Charlie Brown. And he, she says, get a good run. And then when he f- gets there, she pulls the football away and he lands up on his back. Arr! Right? That's what I'm going to do to you because that knowledge that I've just given you, all of that Bible study, all of those details are potentially useless. How do you, why why do you say that? Did you see it in the text? Verse three, let's go back there. He called together the people's chief priests and teachers of law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. What's the right answer? Said Herod. And they said, oh, Bethlehem. That's easy. Bethlehem. And the chief priests and the scribes of the people knew all the right answers. All of Israel was looking for the Christ. These guys knew all about it. They knew all about the Old Testament prophecies. They had all of the intelligence, all of the information. But of all people who should have gone to Bethlehem to worship the shepherd king, it would be these guys with all of the information and all of the knowledge, and yet they don't. Bethlehem is only five miles away, but they never go. Instead, it is pagans that go and bow their knees to Jesus. It is dangerous to let knowledge lie around and rot. It is dangerous to be apathetic. Let your knowledge, can I challenge you with this? Let your knowledge lead you somewhere. Let your knowledge lead you somewhere. What did you learn today? That Matthew's purpose is in writing is to prove Jesus is the king. That knowledge is useless to you unless you put him on the throne of your life and you let that knowledge lead you to salvation. So Herod stole the throne and, and weaseled his way into being king of the Jews. That knowledge is useless if you never come to understand that God's plan will always have opposition. There will always be Herods that will oppose Jesus. But the same, on the same hand, God will always win out. 
And let that knowledge lead you to the place of comfort the next time that you are opposed. So the star might not actually be a physical star. Maybe it's the very presence of God, but that knowledge is useless to you if you never come to the understanding that the same glory that led the wise men to the house can be leading you even this afternoon in your decisions. That knowledge must lead you somewhere. Now, in this text, the wise men are led to the shepherd king. They're not led to Jerusalem. They're not led to Herod. They're not led even to the scriptures. The scriptures themselves point somewhere else. They're not led to Bethlehem. They're not led to a house, but they are led to the shepherd king. And when they arrive, they meet the self-sacrificing, loving ruler, the king of the Jews. There is a custom in this time that when you requested an audience with the king, you would bring gifts. And that is, of course, what the wise men did. There is another custom in which the king would reciprocate and give back. Any king that um, allowed visitors into his presence and they, bear, they, they brought him gifts, it was customary for those kings to give back and give a reciprocal gift. The question here is, what did Jesus give? Indeed, that's a good question. In the Old Testament, we read about this idea of sacrifice. That because we sin, and we get this even from the very beginning pages of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sin, God sacrifices an animal to cover them both physically and spiritually. And from then on, we get this idea that Without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice. There is no forgiveness of sins. So there must be sacrifice so that sins can be forgiven. And one of the animals that was routinely sacrificed in the Old Testament was a a sheep. And of sheep, when God asks for sacrifice, he asks for specific things when it comes to sacrifices of sheep. First... It must be the firstborn. In Exodus 34, 19, he says, when you sacrifice a sheep, it's got to be the firstborn. Why would God ask for that? Well, because it reveals where my heart is. If I'm unwilling to give up my firstborn, maybe I don't love him as much as I think I do. He says, number two, this sacrifice needs to be without blemish. Without blemish. Leviticus 1 and 5 tells us about that. And Shepherds would literally work for years, expend tons of energy getting their flock to the point where they could produce one sheep that was perfect without blemish. And they spent all of this energy, all of this time, all of their resources to come up with this perfect sheep only to sacrifice it because that's what God wanted. And third, it had to be the sacrifice had to be something that could not be regained. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we learn about this uh, first shearing of the sheep. When you shear the sheep for the first time and you come up with this fleece, that's what I want. And the first shearing was special because it was the finest wool that you could get. And it was also the smallest amount because of the size of the sheep when it happened. 
And God says, I want that. And what God is asking here is for something that will never be recovered. Now, take that information and watch what the shepherd king does as he gives a gift, not just to the wise men, but to you and me. In humility, he gives back in sacrifice and he gives himself because he is the firstborn. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn. He is also called the firstborn among many brothers in Romans 8. He is the firstborn of creation in Colossians 1. He is the firstborn among the dead in Revelation 1. He is, the, he is God's firstborn in Hebrews 1, 6. Second, watch him because he is without blemish. Jesus, for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin. That's what 2 Corinthians Chapter 5 says, he was without blemish. All of those years and energy of living life exactly how God thought it should be lived. He was without blemish. And then he gives up something that can never be regained. Philippians 2 tells us about Jesus as he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And Jesus became a man. And the status that he once had as only God will never be the same. From now until eternity. From now through eternity. He will always be God and man. And he can never regain that status that he once had. And so we know that God loves us because of his gift And his gift to the wise men, his gift to you, is sacrifice. Simply put, it's sacrifice. We know God loves us because of the sacrifice he gave, because the best way to love is to sacrifice. Any sermon on the wise men is probably not complete without that seventh grade assignment that you had. Do you remember in English, you had to read... It was called the gift of the Magi. Do you remember the story? Oh, Henry tells about Della. And Della is a woman who has beautiful long hair. The problem is it's Christmas and she has only $1.87 in her pocket. And she wants to buy her husband Jim a gift She wants to buy him a gold chain to go with his prized pocket watch. Do you remember the story, right? But she has no money, but she has beautiful long hair. So she goes down to the wig shop and she cuts all her hair off and she sells it. And then she goes and buys the chain and she comes home. And when he gets home from work, he stares at her bewildered because the hair that was once there is now gone. And he presents to her the gift that he bought to her for her. And they are beautiful tortoise-shelled combs that he spent a ton of money for. And he gives them to a person who now has no hair to put them in. And she says, these were massively expensive. How did you pay for these? And he said, you know, my prized pocket watch. I sold it. And then she gives him his gift which is a chain for the pocket watch that now doesn't exist either. 
And O. Henry writes this at the very end of that short story. It's brilliant. He says, the Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. And they invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here, I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said, That of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Oh, all who give and receive gifts, such as they, are wisest. Everywhere, they are the wisest. They are the magi. To be wise, to love, is to give yourself. It is to sacrifice You've heard it said, uh, uh, maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker, wise men still seek him, right? Um, Along the way, I've always thought that that was kind of cheesy. Uh, Don't want to rain on your parade. Maybe you think that's a great slogan. That's all right. But I figured out why. Because I don't think it goes far enough. The seeking needs to lead somewhere. The seeking needs to lead to sacrifice. And Jesus gives that gift of sacrifice. He gave everything so we could give everything as well. And when everybody is giving everything that they have and sacrificing for everybody else, then the world works like it's supposed to work. It doesn't take much to be wise. It just takes everything you have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the knowledge that you have given us. But I pray that it would lead us somewhere. We are educated way past the level of our obedience. And we need to repent of that. Lord, help us to remember that when we meet you, the scriptures say that you will tell us not well thought, but you will tell us well done, good and faithful servant. And so let our understanding lead to action, let it lead to love, and let it lead to sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.